Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 8th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Back from vacation. How was Maine? It was beautiful. Thank you. Hi, John. Hi. And uh, associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today for the first time, my old friend and maybe the most indefatigable uh, columnist, uh, political columnist on the web today, author of Wide World of News, uh, author of Game Change, uh, veteran Washington watcher, political pundit, well, not really a pundit, more a reporter than a pundit, uh, Mark Halperin. Wanted to have you on for a long time. Hi, Mark. John, so good to be here. Longtime listener, first time participant, and I believe I've won two tickets to see Hall and Oates at Meriwether Post Pavilion. So I'm very oh, glad my. to be here. And so a quick story about Hall and Oates. 1985, 1986, I was a 20, I was a 23-, 24-year-old whelp, wise ass, working as the editor of the Capital Life section of the Washington Times. And I put out a feature on Christmas morning called the 25 most annoying people of the year. And we did a sort of a, a which is the sort of thing that a 24 year old whelp does. Cause like you just make something to insult people to try to get attention. And uh, one of the 25 most annoying people of the year that year in my estimation was um, Oates of Hall and Oates. Cause it's like, who's Oates? Why is Oates? You know, he doesn't even do anything. He just sits with his mustache and Daryl Hall does all the singing and he's good looking and it's uh, Oates, Oates, Oates. And I happened to be working that morning because I was the Jew on Christmas. And so I was an editor at the paper and I was sort of like running the paper on Christmas morning. And uh, the phone rings at the front desk and they transfer it to me. And it's John Oates, who's <laughs> was in town for Christmas and whose mother was a subscriber to the Washington Times. And he sort of got, he was like, I, I don't know why you find me annoying. That was actually a great lesson uh, in, in my life that, uh, you know, you put things out there and then they, they come back. Like the last thing I ever <laughs> expected was to hear from John Oates. And there, there, there we are. So thank you for mentioning John Oates so I could tell that anecdote. More importantly, Mark, uh, as, the, as the close. So Mark puts out a newsletter. It's in your inbox at six o'clock in the morning, practice every morning, seven days a week. 365 days a year. I don't know how you do it. You've like digested all the papers, you've read all the articles and you pick taught you you sort of have various models. My favorite one which is today's is what to say to the loudmouth on your Zoom this morning about X Y or Z story as it comes up. But so you you watch this stuff as granularly as anybody on earth. So the I don't want to call it the Inflation Reduction Act uh, because I don't like lies coming out of my mouth, uh, particularly if they're not my own. Uh, so the bill, the big reconciliation bill, uh, has passed the Senate after the 22-hour or something voterama, which we can talk about a little bit. So there it is. It's passed. Uh, it's another several hundred billion dollars in new spending and mostly in the form of tax credits. We can get to why that's different from direct spending, but um, uh, how, and of course, Democrats are saying two things, one of which is we're back in the game. We've turned it around. Look at the last six weeks. It's amazing what we've been able to accomplish and we've saved the planet. The planet is saved this is the most important piece of climate legislation ever. It's the largest on the planet. We're going to reduce emissions by 40% under the uh, more than we even thought we could. And uh, we've saved the planet. We put ourselves back in the game and uh, we're gonna be rewarded for this. Um, how do you see the state of play in Washington on this Monday morning is the Democratic line, which I think they believe, I don't think it's just spin, is it more accurate than not? Um, I think uh, we don't know yet. 
uh, and we'll have to see how the parties handle it. Um, I checked the local papers in the battleground states to see how much coverage this was getting. Was this going to be treated the way Chuck Schumer is acting like it's the greatest thing ever? The leading paper in Arizona led with thunderstorms. The leading paper in Pittsburgh led with the question of the accreditation of their zoo, um, well above coverage of, I'm not kidding, well above the coverage of the bill. So the zoo, the zoo, the, yeah. zoo. the accreditation of the Pittsburgh Zoo is not an insignificant issue. But if, you, if I think the Democrats would take issue with with the treat with the treatment of it by the Pittsburgh paper, I think that, you know, one of I, one of the things I like is my readers are both liberal and conservative. And one of my conservative readers said he calls the bill the Inflation Creation Act. And I think you see in the Republican Party extraordinary unity. You can read a Jim Jordan tweet or Mitt Romney tweet describing what they think about the bill, and it's exactly the same. That's that's good to have unity heading into the midterms. Democrats are pretty united as well. And I think the advantage to the Republicans is it's easy to talk about a small business hit by tax increases or a small business who's going to be audited. Talking about the benefits to re the real lives of real people of the bill from the Democratic point of view, I think it's harder because none of the benefits are going to occur before the midterms. And lastly, I'll just say, you know, you said I cover Washington and I dabble in that, but really I prefer to cover America. And I would say in America, this is not going to be the same factor that Chuck Schumer says it's going to be, but it gives them momentum. It gives them confidence. It gives them something to talk about that's not about inflation. And so I think on balance, this is better than the status quo for Democrats, but I don't think it is, if you'll pardon the expression, a game changer. Can I so can Noah, I just can I oh yeah, just add Christine. real quick the 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 Hall and Oates moment the I can't go for that moment was Marco Rubio during the Voterama <laughs> he actually very succinctly said this is not going to deal with the border with crime with what it costs to to buy clothing or food and that actually that message hasn't changed for the Republicans it's what they were saying before it's what they'll continue to say and they're correct to say it and then you can add to that the the you know absolute loathing of the Internal Revenue Service that most Americans sort of have a knee jerk reaction to anyway and talk about how how they're raising it's basically a tax increase for a lot of families that Biden had promised when he ran for president he wouldn't be taxing. I'm I, I'm I'm curious about this, which is there. There have been two attacks on politics, really from Perot onward, uh, in the in the world of sort of like why Washington stinks, which I would say Ross Perot really was the first politician to crystallize, even though Reagan, of course, ran as a kind of anti-Washington populist, but didn't that wasn't his main. Perot was Washington stinks, government stinks. And there were two aspects of it, one of which is that the policies are bad, which we can agree is what we look at politics as being about, right? Policies. If the government and things are pursuing policies we think are good, we will tend to think that the government is functioning as it should, if they pursue policies that are bad, then government is bad. Then there's the second one, which is they can't get anything done. They can't get things fixed. They can't get anything done. So the Democratic line over the last 24 hours has been, we've fixed Washington. Washington is no longer broken. Look, we've had 26 votes that Kamala Harris has you know, broken the tie on and turned into legislation. We have broken the code. Washington is no longer dysfunctional. We can make it work even with a 50-50 Senate and a House with a tiny razor-thin margin by being unified, by having blah, 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 whatever. Is that message a real message that ordinary people can tweak to, that it's good that Washington is getting things done? Or, Mark, or is it, it doesn't matter. What matters is what they do when they get things done. And if they get things done that people don't like, it's probably worse than not getting anything done at all. Or am I, that's my common sense, though I understand yeah. the notion that government is supposed to, you know, like pass a budget. It's supposed to do that. It doesn't do that. Then what are these people doing for a living? I agree with Christine about the Rubio uh, framing. I thought that was the, the smartest that I saw. And I think it goes to the answer to your question, which is they don't really don't care if Washington works. You know, it's the, the Bob Dole rule of the world, uh, view of the world that it's, you know, we did the motion to recommit. We need some applause. This is good. <laughs> we did it. 
Um, <laughs> if inflation gets lower, if growth gets above 2%, if, um, if, if the border is secured, if crime goes down, then I think people will say, great, Washington's working. But 50 Democratic senators and the vice president voting to pass a bill that has not, not a great connection to the real lives of real people today, I don't think that matters. Now, this stuff might, might improve people's lives, but it ain't going to improve people's lives before early voting starts. That's just right. it. I mean, they can expect if if there's some entropic reduction in the cost of living, then in voters' minds, they might make a connection between this bill, which has nothing to do with inflation, and the reduced inflation. Now, that would just be a stroke of luck. Uh, you know, the <clears throat> this university Republicans have ammunition here. This University of uh, Pennsylvania Wharton School study preliminary study on this which suggested it'll actually increase inflationary pressure in the short term and do next to nothing to reduce it in the long term that fuels republican arguments but i'm thinking about this the gun control bill and i wrote about this on friday right remember the gun control bill first gun control bill in 30 years it was a huge accomplishment by congress voters don't remember it at all according to this kaiser family foundation survey measuring uh voters priorities priority number one is gas prices and inflation the second priority is gun violence why because what voters want to see is the re reduced gun violence. They want less gang violence. They want the terror of random mass shootings to be alleviated. This bill doesn't do that. It can't do that. What is When it comes to climate change, what do voters want to see, especially Democratic voters? What do they want to see? They want to see reduced extreme weather events. Can't give you that. We can give you tax credits for heat pumps on your house, but we can't make the weather nicer. I mean, that's literally what they're setting the expectations for. They're going to be unmet. Democrats don't need it explained to them why environmental protection measures somehow reduce inflation. They make that connection in their heads. Lord knows why. But nobody else does. So I don't expect I don't know what they expect to see from this, save the momentum begetting momentum. Well, Abe, as a matter of. I don't know, common sense, it's better for a party to succeed than to fail, right? So obviously Democrats are in better shape because they feel better about themselves because they got something done that they, because of their own internal psychosis, were unable to do last year because of overreach, right? So they feel better about themselves and therefore will go to the public with a renewed sense of confidence or at least a storyline that they'll be able to like in may you couldn't even imagine what a democrat was going to say on the campaign trail that was going to sound good except these guys these guys over here are crazy vote for me because they're just they're so crazy but that was no positive so but right I, commonsensically I, but i i even find this story and you know i'll give I'll give him some credit for having pulled it off. But even this story is not really that impressive. The story is, look, it turns out we're not abject failures. We 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 got the government to function for two whole weeks. You know, that's not it's not given before this. They had absolutely nothing. You're right. So this is, hey, look, we got we got something on the board. That's kind of the story. I mean, it's not just it's nothing not being they, framed like that. They have accomplishments that they always underplay. The gun control bill is forgotten because they don't talk about it very often. The infrastructure bill, a trillion dollars of spending in infrastructure that everybody's wanted for a generation. Who talks about it? It's always the next well, thing. I think I think the problem is the guy who's mostly talking about it with the biggest megaphone has leaves about as much of an impression as Dick Sargent does. Um <laughs> Or maybe I mean Dick York, which is my no, point. No, you mean, I mean Dick Sargent, yes. Yeah, I thought I did, but just making sure. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that that this is why Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton thought Joe Biden should never be president, or one of the reasons, which is he just doesn't have the capacity to drive a message. And I totally agree with you about the infrastructure bill. Americans don't associate that with some great vision of Joe Biden or some great achievement that's made their lives better. Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, they could talk the owls down from the trees. They could talk about that bill like it was, you know, the direct linear path of voters to the polls for Democrats. But Biden just can't do that. And that's why I think the, the, the ability of the Democrats to win this fight 
with one side talking about IRS agents at the door and higher taxes for America's working families and the other side relying on the silver tongue of Joe Biden to to make the case. I think I think Democrats may be disappointed if if they think this is going to revolutionize the midterms. That IRS well, thing I, is a time I, bomb. They're not they're not really properly appreciating, in my view. Yeah, I, and I they all, wanna... they, I, I also just want to say that they're not even talking about this as an Inflation Reduction Act consistently anymore. It's now switched to sweeping climate and health care act. So it's confusing people who don't actually have a very high attention span for sweeping federal legislation as it is. Yeah. And uh, just to talk about short attention span. Remember, the IRS provision or something like it was in the infrastructure bill as a major source of funding, and it had to be taken out because it was a complete non-starter politically. And then they just went right back to it. Well, just to add to Mark's point about about Biden being a sort of drag on the messaging and and, and generally here, um, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. None of this happened anywhere near Biden. He was he was waylaid with covid uh, for the first part and then sort of conveniently, I mean, I'm not suspicious of anything, you know, retested positive for the second part of the, the negotiations that actually put, put it through. Um, he, if, if this were in his hands, this would not have happened. It, it, in fact, it didn't. I mean, the important thing about the IRS provision, which is uh, one of the reasons that Perot's message 30 years ago that Washington stinks had purchase is that it's, it's not magic because it is 80,000 IRS agents, but it is the, we're going to write this bill. It's going to cost somewhere between $400 billion and $800 billion, but don't worry, we're going to pay for it. But we're not going to pay for it with anything real. What we're going to pay for it with is we're going to magic up a new way to collect money. So for decades, Republicans and Gore and Clinton Gore and stuff did this. We're going to streamline government. We're going to stream. We're going to do this. We'll save a hundred billion dollars in redundancies. We'll make sure that screws at the Pentagon don't cost six hundred dollars. We're going to do this and that, and then we're going to find all this money, and that's going to pay for the new fun things that we want to do. Right. So this is how it's the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. The only way it's the Inflation Reduction Act is that the government is going to collect new revenue without increasing taxes though this will increase taxes a little bit but um but that's that's every, that, yeah, go ahead i was going to say that that's a really important point because i think it actually also speaks to their the difficulty of messaging the climate aspects of this bill the democrats for for some time now think it's effective to talk to the american people like a mckinsey consultant talks to a big business when they come in and do a you know an assessment of what's going on because they're it's a technocratic often read as condescending way of talking to people about what's best for them, right? So this you see Buttigieg say this all the time when people complain about, you know, gas prices, like, well, you should buy an electric car. We all know that's better for the environment. Anyway, there's a that sort of way of talking about this is how they're going to talk about this bill. And I think that will be a huge mistake in terms of messaging, because people, the technical details of this aren't that important to people, because they're concerned about other things, which this bill doesn't tackle. I haven't all. seen Democrats adopt the position of progressives on you know pounding the table on the internet their their position so far is well this is going to you know we're going to collect uncollected revenue from you know people who have a lot of tax revenue and spend a ton of money on accountants and what have you to evade tax law and that's that's good this is a lot of money left on the table and it's all all good revenue um but they on the internet the progressives and they're very tempted by this progressives are saying well what do you have to worry about if you don't cheat on your taxes you got nothing to worry about, right? But if you do cheat on your taxes, you're probably the person who's concerned that IRS agents are coming after you. What have you got to hide? Um, that's somebody who's had no experience with the IRS yeah. other than, you know, filing or a, a small w, business, never filing a dub two, filing a 1099 every once in a while. Yeah, these are people who don't go sign the front of the back of the check. Yeah, well, um, you know, my 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 nephew, uh, Noam Bloom, who tweets as Neon Taster said uh, this morning that, um, uh, why, why are you worried? Just don't cheat on your taxes is the liberal version of, <laughs> well, don't don't get arrested, you know, don't get arrested. Why Why would you don't, why don't would resist? You yeah, don't yeah. resist arrest or, you know, don't whatever. If you Consent resist to the you search, deserve getting beaten <laughs> to death by a cop in Minneapolis, like, you know, it's everybody's got their own favorite crime. My father used to say for which all civil liberties should be suspended. 
There's always one crime for which civil liberties need to be suspended because anybody who's accused of it should go to jail. And so tax evasion has now become that crime. I mean, how, how long have we been well, how long have we been yeah. talking about increasing the IRS's, you know, policing power? And every time they talk about it, the progressive left who really likes this idea of uncollected revenue and, and capturing it is like, well, yeah, actually, the IRS is good. And I, I feel like I'm living on the moon. Do they not talk to people? Have they had no experience with what public sentiment is about the Internal Revenue Service? It's not great. It's not a popular agency. Can I give you a little popular history of the IRS and politics in America? Because it's interesting, because in the 1970s and 1980s, it is the case that middle class people were actually in sort of like in aggregate, were much more likely to end up getting audited than they have been in the last 25, 30 years. It's weird. Why did that happen? So here's why it happened. And the progressives have bitten bit themselves in a certain way, which is that the earned income tax credit was passed. The earned income tax credit was the first time that the government was affirmatively, the federal government would affirmatively send people money, right? That had never really happened before in this way. You got unemployment, whatever you, whatever benefits you got, you got at the state level. The earned income tax credit provided would be a check that was sent to you if you could prove thus, such, and the other. And uh, of all people, the person who explained this to me many years ago when he was not quite as progressive as he is now was Lawrence O'Donnell, who was Pat Moynihan's key staffer. Uh, and the thing about it is that the earning income tax credit was such a temp was such a directed possibility for massive fraud. People saying, you know, put it, putting things under the table, not working, doing stuff so they could get this benefit from the government that the Clinton people and the Gore in order to win sufficient support to get the EITC passed, said, don't worry, there is going to be sustained auditing of those who use the earned income tax credit that is in the law that created the earned income tax credit, that there had to be, I don't know, one in every 10 recipients or some in aggregate had to have, there had to be checking to make sure that it wasn't, the government wasn't being defrauded. And suddenly, poor people became the major subject of income tax auditing in the United States, almost by definition, because millions of people get the earned income tax credit. The law required this kind of, it's almost like at random searches at the airport, you know, when you walk through the metal detector and it beeps and then they have to search you even though there's no reason, you've given them no reason to search you. And so one of the things, the sotto voce things you don't know about progressives is they know this happened. They think it's not fair because the, because the IRS doesn't audit ordinary middle-class taxpayers the way it used to, because it would do that and then they would come to settle, right, for a couple thousand dollars or something and come to an audit. I, I remember my parents were audited twice. Like it was, it's, I'm sure it's a lot easier now because, you know, of computerized records, but, you know, they would have to make up receipts and this, and you know, have show a ledger and sit with an auditor at a, in an office in lower Manhattan and all this, you know, it was like agony and it's still agony, but basically they would say, okay, it's $2,000. Let's call it even or something like that. Right now, this is going to happen to tens of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to whom it never happened before. Um, it's crazy. Like, that's not good politics. Maybe I'm maybe I'm nuts. I mean, you know, it's not just, oh, the IRS is going to be bigger and we all hate the IRS. It's actually, technically speaking, every Democrat in the country will now have voted for the expansion of the IRS. And every single person who gets audited now as a result of the expansion of the IRS is going to become a Republican voter for life. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, one encounter, the IRS's behavior in the 1970s played some role in the resurgence of the Republican Party nationally. Mark, I want to ask you this one thing about these kinds of things. So this is like we're saving the planet. We pass this bill, we save the planet. And then you have this problem of well, what does an individual taxpayer get? Like what? How does he look at it and say they're saving the planet? Like, what? what is that? You're telling me, theoretically, the planet isn't going to melt now, right? When really successful political policies are enacted, 
they have very large effects that people can feel, right? That's why the supply-side tax cuts were such a political game changer because, like, kind of everybody got a tax cut. Almost everybody in the country got a tax cut from, you know, it's like the problem with inflation in reverse, right? Everyone's affected by inflation. Everybody's inflect and and you know is is uh, is affected by tax rates. Can Democrats say, okay, so can Democrats say, not just you, you're you're going to get, you're going to be less affected by weather. You're not going to get you're you know you're not going to get skin cancer because we're going to fix the ozone layer. I don't know what they'll say, but what will they say? First of all, your IRS story shows once again why you're considered the burl lives of the Upper West Side. That was a really well told tale. <laughs> thank, for that. Oh well, thank you very much. I have my I have um, my I have my guitar here and yeah, strum yeah, away. Yeah, um, the anti-communist burl. I you know he was he was in fact actually he wasn't. Okay, go ahead. That was Will yeah. here. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> two issues that Democrats have long thought would mobilize their voters, particularly in a midterm where you need to mobilize on passion, are the environment and abortion rights. And the data is pretty clear that that has never worked before. Democrats are counting on it working this time. They have reason to think it might be different in the case of abortion, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe. In the case of the environment, they passed the largest green bill in the history of the country. I'm still a little skeptical that those voters will turn out because of those issues, but in, in large enough numbers to offset a red wave. But that's that's the theory of the case. I think it's less about the specifics of how is your daily life going to be better, um, less skin cancer, more audits, um, than it is just we're the party that stands for saving the planet. And that may not win over uh, Republicans, but it might inspire some progressives to turn out who otherwise wouldn't. And it might win over some independent voters if, if the Democrats are skillful enough to bundle those things up and say, here's 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 column A and we're column B and we're better. Hey. I- you know, when it comes to the saving the planet messaging, it strikes me that I liberals might have created a problem for themselves over the past few years on this, which is that all the stories and all the messaging had been, this is so much worse than you realized. The, the real problem is already here. It's not coming. People are dying. They're migrating. This is what they've made it so gargantuan. Who now thinks that some tax credits for wind and solar are going to turn are going to turn this around. You know, they've almost made it an unsolvable catastrophe that's that's coming your way that it sort of makes it hard for anyone to swoop in and say, we're, we're your heroes on this. That's well, exactly right. And gonna... if you take it at face value, if they if you think they're being they're genuine and in good faith, then in three months, this will be a forgotten measure because the source of of emissions is not in the United States. We've been presiding over declining emissions for nearly 20 years now. This will reduce emissions if you take the estimates you know, at face value, and I do, but that's not going to address the problem of global emitters. So in three months, they'll be saying, we're still on a path towards civilizational collapse. We need another bill. They also have to they have to wrangle their progressive left flank on this because they did open this bill. Correct me if I'm wrong, does open up some federal land to oil and gas drilling. Right. They do not want that. And they're they're going to have to keep them quiet about that part of the bill if they're actually going to see that through. Okay, Mark, I want to ask you about momentum and enthusiasm, because that's what we're talking about here. Right. We know Republicans are wildly enthusiastic to vote in 2022. That number has been consistent, really, since. January or February, that if you ask, it's like 74% of Republicans or something say they're enthusiastic to vote. The Democratic number has been in the 60s, so it's lower, particularly issue by issue. So, but, you know, in the end, you can, by the way, get unenthusiastic people to vote. That was the Obama 2012 story is that is that I remember Rush Schrieffer, who ran Romney's campaign, saying they had no idea that Obama was going to generate some of the voters he generated because they were doing this daily polling. And when they asked people what their enthusiasm level was, a lot of Democratic voters would say one or two. And in classic political consultant terms, they figured ones and twos aren't going to come out to vote. And Obama got ones and twos out to vote. So the enthusiasm picture changed, right? So you can get unenthusiastic people to vote if you're really technically competent. But let's say Democrats have this enthusiasm problem. Can you say that you can do a kind of a la carte 
enthusiasm play where you get a few people over here who really care about climate change or are going to be jazzed by the climate change bill, or you get some people over here, even among independents, let's say Democrats, you get people over here who are really worried about abortion and think Republicans are too extreme on abortion. So you get some of them, you get some of them over here, you get people who think that democracy is now, you know, at, at grave risk and you have to beat the Republicans back no matter who they are because they're they're going at democracy. And you kind of take five or six issues, not one issue of which seems to generate the, you know, the numbers and when people say what they care most about, but you get those and then you kind of sew them together and then you get an electorate that is enthusiastic on single issues, but not on the aggregate. And that can compete with the electorate that is doesn't like Democrats, thinks doesn't like the cult, you know, doesn't like Democratic culture war and is and is worried about inflation. Is that a real thing? I think so. When I think about analyzing the midterms, I always think about the asymmetries between the two sides that give one side an advantage. I think there are three asymmetries that speak to what you're talking about. First of all, the media obviously prefers to favor Democrats. Joe Biden has gotten horrible coverage, but these recent developments give the media the permission structure to go back to cheering for the Democrats the rest of the way. They would love the red wave to be stopped because of things like the abortion environment. That's a a big advantage to the Democrats. Saying the Democrats have more money, they're raising a lot more money in the right places for the right candidates. And that gives them the ability to both narrow cast on the kind of abortion environment, Trump issues that you're talking about, but also have a broad message, particularly around MAGA, that I think can mobilize their, their side. And then lastly, the Republicans have a lot of really bad candidates. And so you can talk all you want about inflation and gas prices, et cetera. But if if John if John Fetterman turns out to be a substantially better ca- candidate than Dr. Oz, and they can find an oppo's research stuff about Dr. Oz that fires up the left, Dr. Oz will lose, regardless of how high the inflation rate is. So I think those three asymmetries all play to the ability of Democrats to turn people out with passion on micro targets. All right. So uh, let me. I'm 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 excited to take a minute to step back and excited to tell you about a new offering from our friend and longtime advertiser David Bonson. So David, you know, wrote this book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, has written for commentary, uh, runs an investment management group with three and a half million dollars under management. Uh, David has now started an online school course. He's calling it Bonson Economics 101, free. Uh, Starting today, published online, you can take a total course in economics and its connection to human flourishing, uh, faith, dynamism, and all the principles that uh, we've been talking about in relation to him for a year. There are 30 lectures, a full syllabus, dozens of uh, reading recommendations and video links. There are quizzes, there are essay prompts. There is a final exam. Uh, It is available at bonson.com starting today, bonson.com slash economics hyphen course. Now, so what is in this course there? It is, it is as rich as you can possibly imagine uh, as a kind of full throated, exploration of all the ideas that undergird uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics, how money is made, how how the velocity of money matters, and how all this affects you on a day-to-day basis. This is, you know, one of the greatest things about the internet, this kind of democratization of, let's say, graduate school, kind of, that that this is something that people, you can go, and this is entirely for free, so you can get yourself an economic education online uh, through bonson.com. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com. Go to the website. You'll see uh, at the uh, in the top uh, panels, you'll see something that said the economics course. You click on it. You put your name in. You put your email in. You say why you want to do it, and then you just get started. Um, this is one of the most exciting new offerings that I've seen, and so I think you guys really should sign up today. So, Mark, you've been saying you just you made the case Republicans have bad candidates and they do, but they have the easiest message, national message 
that any political party has had since the late 1970s as a national message about where things are. Maybe 2010 with Obama and the, you know, and, and the failure of recovery summer and the passage of Obamacare. I don't know that maybe that was comparable, but um, it seems to me they've gotten really bad at telling their story or pitching their message in part because Trump decided as the head of the party that he wasn't even going to bother that suasion was not part of his approach that he was going to assume his people supported him and then he was just going to go for the jugular of every and anybody and everybody who thought differently and try to work on the intensity level people can argue about what worked and what didn't he didn't win a second term he lost a lot in 2018 and you know he didn't get as much done with his two houses of congress uh in the first two years before he lost them he didn't get as much done as Biden and the Democrats have now gotten done in their two years. Uh, do you have to be good at this or is the, or, or is the, um, is the message itself so overwhelming that uh, they can ride it without particular competence in their stewardship of the message that things are worse? I think that the developments of the last week where Biden has had a number of accomplishments mean it does matter, maybe decisively, particularly in some of the governors and Senate races. And I look at these Republican candidates, you mentioned the ones nominated in Arizona. I think there's two things that are true. One is they don't have Trump's talent. They're Trumpy candidates in the sense that they talk about the election being stolen and they're celebrities in many cases, and they just think they can run on saying corrupt, you know, uh, uh, media is bad and, and own the libs. And I just don't think you can necessarily win because they're not as good as Trump. So they're trying Trump's playbook without Trump's skill. And then second, we've seen, you mentioned 2010, we've seen Senate candidates lose very winnable races in wave years because they're just not very good candidates. And the opposition research comes over the transom into a media that wants to have the Republicans lose and they handle it horribly. And that defines the race. It defines the debates. It defines the advertising. It defines the press coverage for the last few weeks of the, of the election. So. I think Republicans could lose, could Democrats could pick up net seats in the Senate right now because in almost every competitive race, Republican candidates are horrible. They're B or C candidates. There are no A candidates amongst all the Republicans. And I include Ron Johnson, an incumbent in that. And you look at these governor's races in Arizona, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, maybe in Wisconsin, we'll see. Republicans have nominated gubernatorial candidates who are just not very good candidates. They're not unappealing across the board. They won their primaries, but they're Trumpy candidates without his skills. And, and I think it could be it could produce a wash on election night overall in terms of the kind of conventional wisdom, even if Republicans take back the house. Okay. I want to praise you. I want to tell a story, people, about you because this goes to how much people should take your prognosticative abilities uh to, to in account, to account, you know, uh, as they think about what you said. In October of 2015. Uh, you you had a show on Bloomberg TV, and I came on that show, and we were sitting on this very grand, grand set, um, uh, waiting for stuff to go on. And you were like, "What do you think about Trump?" And I did the classic, "Yeah, he's gonna fade. Come on, you know this always happens." Rudy was at thirty percent in twenty, you know, in twenty eleven, he faded and new to all those everybody kept rising and falling and trump's the kind of herman kane it's just going to happen and you were like i don't know i don't know i was out there i was i went to one of those rallies or i was i've been i i i've never seen anything like i gotta tell you i've never seen anything like this i was like yeah come on i know you know look at this field rubio is so talented and all this and you're like nah i don't know and that was early i mean granted trump had already been in the lead in the polling for like six weeks at that point. But you were the first person that I knew in media who said, don't swat, don't drink the anti-Trump Kool-Aid. Like there is something real going on. So if you're, if you're here, people should, you know, listen and take account of it. Yeah. I've been hearing what you just said over the last week from, you know, Mainstream Republicans, various people that I've I've talked to who are 
very who look at the field of battle and say yeah but i will say in 2010 republicans were down i think it was 59 41 in the senate right i think because scott brown had won so they were actually they're 50 50 now down 59 41 they had these four really disastrous candidates right angle o'donnell uh murdoch i can't remember who the fourth was uh aiken that was maybe. 12 <laughs> was Aiken 12 okay anyway they were down too. okay so but they had others <laughs> i can't remember who it was right okay so and but they still won six they netted six they got to 47 um and we've cited three or four bad candidates here you know walker johnson you mentioned oz um masters um, dance Vance, um, but there are these others that are sort of under the radar. I keep mentioning uh, Tiffany Smiley in Washington State and Joe Dame, Colorado, who people keep telling me are pretty formidable and are under the radar, even though they are in less favorable circumstances. But not in a way they're not in less favorable circumstances. If you if you moved either of those two candidates, the, the Republican nominees in Washington and Colorado, to Pennsylvania, for instance, they'd win the seat easily. Right. But they're just they're just in harder races. I've never seen a cycle where every competitive race, one party had bad candidates. Never seen a cycle like that. Every literally, except for the two you cited, which are obviously in the next ring out. But in the in the seven most competitive races, every Republican candidate is a B or really C candidate right now. And you don't win races like that, particularly against incumbents without A candidates, if the A candidate doesn't have a scandal. So that's that's just the that's just the reality. That's not me cheering for either right. side. It's just the reality. And you know, you go back to you said you said kindly about my my being early on tr on understanding Trump. I didn't go to one rally. I went to rallies in thirty states by the end of the thing, and it's the same now. Um, listening to voters talk about uh, the Senate Republican Senate candidates, they're just they're just not world beaters. They, some of them might win. There are a lot of undistinguished people in the Senate currently, but. Uh, but it's going to be hard if the Democrats use their opposition research the way I think they're going to. So, um, but this gets to this interesting thing, which is that Republican voters, as well as the National Republican Party, for reasons involving their relationship to Trump in complicated ways, no longer think in terms of as they did in 2014, for example, after the troubles in 2010 and 2012, who can we pick who's going to win? Or look, I'm all in it. I don't care who the Republican is. I'm voting for the Republican. But my neighbor next door is a squish. You know, we probably need Cory Gardner instead of Ken Buck in Colorado. I know the voters didn't make that switch to pick Cory Gardner, but we're going to need a Cory Gardner because my neighbor over here, he's going to vote for Cory Gardner, but he's not going to vote for Ken Buck. Or, you know, this happened time and again in 2014, Republicans won nine seats. Something happened where the party lost its interest in talking to, I'm just sort of Well, you had to have 2010 before you could have 2014. And we forget that 2014 also produced Scott Brown's New Hampshire Senate bid, which was a disaster. Uh, but you had to have Ken Buck lose in Colorado to know that you had to pull off the switcheroo four years later. Right. Ken but, Buck cost know, them a seat in 2010. I mean, the other interesting aspect of this is in 2011, in 2021, right, we have these two uh, gubernatorial shockers, one victory, one year, one, one, one narrow loss, right? We have Yunkin winning by nine, and we have governor murphy of new jersey losing by three when the polling had him up by a 13 to 16. and in both those cases not that the republican in new jersey whose name i still can't remember was all that memorable but yunkin was relatively memorable and and the whole point is that that was a very deliberate and conscious effort to craft a message that would have broad based appeal, even though the mainstream media didn't understand that it had broad-based appeal. They didn't understand that Youngkin's 
messaging on parents and schools and stuff like that was something that was going because they were living so much in their own COVID bubble. They didn't understand how people were turning against the sort of official line on a lot of this. Um, and then everybody just retreated back into their holes, maybe because the environment was so favorable, they weren't scared. Is that possible? Do you think it's like in Arizona, though they was pretty late, like they should have been able to make a more conscious choice, but it's like, we're going to, we're going to win so easily that we can pick anybody. I think Youngkin proves that candidates matter. His message is not that different from lots of other Republicans who I think have a good chance of losing. He's just a really good candidate. He finessed Trump brilliantly. Um, he handled kind of the, the semiotics of vests and suburbs really well. And I think that mattered at least as much as the issues he talked about. And that's why I think most Republicans I know think he's the third most likely Republican nominee, even though most people have no idea who he is, because he's a great candidate. And a lot of the other people who are thinking of running for president are not. And as I said several times, I'll repeat it again. A lot of the people who will be on the ballot in November with an R after their name are just not very good candidates. So let's game this out after November. So two things happen. There's either a wave where the wave is somehow, uh, inter the, the wave is should be a naturally occurring phenomenon, but things have happened that suggest that it may be interrupted or lessened or mitigated or something like that. So it would seem to me that the clear meta message, if you're like a political professional, if the wave is interrupted is the GOP better not nominate Trump in 2024. I don't care how old Biden is. I don't care this. I don't care that. Um, the can I know they're, these candidates aren't as talented as Trump, but they basically went with a Trump approach, which was, you know, attack, belittle, the other side, say America isn't working, say the vote is rigged, say this, say that, say the other thing, that message will have no purchase with anybody other than the 44% of people who voted for Trump in 2016 to begin with. And this would be a disaster. Um, I don't know that just because that's what the political professionals will come away with, that that will have any effect whatsoever on the rank and file, who will probably say the election was stolen in 2022, I imagine. Is that a plausible scenario? This, again, war between sort of like people who do this for a living and ordinary voters who want to vote for whom they want to vote for. Noah, what do you think? I mean, yeah, of course it's a plausible scenario. <laughs> I, I, I don't, it might be an optimistic scenario. But it's an entirely plausible scenario. Uh, look, we all know what the fundamentals of this race are. They have been the fundamentals of this race, as you say, since since last year, with the possible exception of COVID uh, being a, a, a really uh, something that's on the forefront of voters' minds. It's not anymore. But we do know what the fundamentals are. Gas prices, consumer prices. That's that's what's moving votes, with the possible exception of crime on the edges. Uh, this was not a, an election year that was based on gun control or, or climate change or what have you. And these are efforts to in, invigorate the progressive vote, which, which has been uniquely resistant to invigoration over the course of the last 18 months. Has that turned around? I don't think we'll, we'll know until the middle of next month after Labor Day, perhaps. But if this is a prelude to taking your eyes off the ball, go, going off message, if Democrats go off message here to try to invigorate around social issues, uh, then yeah, they have they absolutely have the possibility to reinvigorate the the red wave, and a lot of these bad candidates will be carried over the threshold, in despite their negatives, rather than oh, okay as a result so, of their prowess. So let's game that out, because the reverse can be true also. The wave isn't interrupted; it happens. Republicans win more than thirty seats in the House, and they take the Senate with bad candidates. Then DeSantis and Youngkin. It have doesn't no... take many, you know. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we've yeah. been talking about these really bad ones. But there are other ones that are kind of bad that probably will win. I I, I don't think yeah. Adam Lexalt is going to lose. It takes. Well, we don't one. know, right? Yeah. Okay, but Ron Johnson could lose, and then you need two, yeah. right? I mean, it's that. Although that's a weird race now because they are 
it sounds like Democrats are on the verge of nominating. Ron Johnson is too bonkers for this purple state. But Mandela Barnes is uh, way too left wing for the purple state also. So you've got like two hobbled, you know, candidates who really are not appropriate for the electorate that they're facing. Uh, that So who knows where that goes? That, that's talk about an interesting toss up. Like, you know, it's not like the Democrats like saw the opportunity in Ron Johnson's uh, bizarreness and then like found a, a nice, a veteran, you know, who has a gun and <laughs> like that to win some people in Door County and, and you know, and and Vilas County and places like that. But um, but if we game so. If we game it out the other way, right, so... Yeah, game if, it out the other way, and you have absolute democratic, a collapse of democratic enthusiasm. If they can't win behind the collapse, of the, the overturning of Roe, the you know gun control, climate change, all this stuff they've wanted to do for... Even at the, the far end of the enthusiasm scale, uh, infrastructure, they did all this stuff, right? I mean, you had, uh, you know, MSNBC talking about, actually, this has been a really active legislative session this congress has been extremely active and extremely effective and we did all these things are talking themselves mm -hmm. into this idea and they still lose what what do they what do they got this this is this is a collapse of a worldview not just one bad legislative term you could well, do that, sorry go ahead I was just going to say, then we're going to start, then we'll revert to what we had, you know, post Stacey Abrams losing the Georgia governor's election before. We'll start talking about election integrity again on the left in the way that they had had done pre-Trump. I think it's worse than that. I mean, I'm more apocalyptic than that, which is why it kind of, you know, in some sense, in terms of the health of the polis, um, a mixed result would, in my in my estimation, be more quieting than you know one one or the other which is that you can either have the democratic party saying america is finished i hate this country it's full of bigots and monsters who are you know who you know want to do terrible things and this country is terrible and you know we need to you know and then who knows what happens sort of like late 60s early 70s moment or the MAGA America's terrible line, you know, this country is full of baby killers and totalitarians who, and you know, want to tell you what to think and throw you in jail for free speech. And you're sitting at CPAC in a cell crying because all you wanted to do was visit the Capitol building on January 6th. And then we have these two basically like very conditional American views of the country and uh and they're full of haters both sides who are just waiting to tip the people who aren't haters into haters and i think it's scary like i don't know what the i don't think america's finished i mean we've been through again mark and i sadly are old enough to remember when things were not all that dissimilar from this in the early to mid seventies, <laughs> but, but, and then we got through it then and we can get through it now, but it, but it, it, it's very unpleasant and weird crap happens. Weird stuff socially happens. You know, the Symbionese liberation army happens and Patty Hearst happens and James Jones, Jim Jones and the people's temple happen. And I don't know what, like bombings, you know, things happen when the country feels as negatively or when the ideological streams feel as negatively as they can. That's my fear. But I think that, I mean, look, now I'll, 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 I see your apocalyptism <laughs> and, and I raise you. Um, I think so that on happens. Brand, the crushing morosity. There we go. <laughs> I, but there's the potential for that to happen either way the midterms go because um when the if and when the the maga candidates get routed um where is all that going to go where is all their right. distrust right. and hatred for the system going to go and right. if there's any sense of triumphalism among uh progressives yeah. after after midterms what do they do with that so I, I yeah. it has the potential to to go in that direction. Right. Well, that's why I said result. a mixed result, maybe a mixed result would be I don't right. know what a mixed result would be. A mixed, obviously, a mixed result is Republicans take the House and, and, and Democrats retain the Senate. That's the ultimate 
mixed result. I mean, and the Republicans taking the House still seems to me to be a, a foregone conclusion. They well, wouldn't wouldn't that just be twenty ten? I mean, what? We, wouldn't that just be twenty ten? We know that the the MAGA movement is is allergic to introspection, but so is the Tea Party yeah. movement, and the the party apparatus had a, a renewed mandate to intervene in the process after leaving so many potential gains on the table wouldn't they have that same mandate you know the sturm and drang of the of the mega people notwithstanding they would have the uh the, the mandate and the aegis to to intervene in in that process and restore some sanity to it yeah well mark i would say you know you again as a, like a student in 2011 like the tea party actually had an agenda that it then pursued after november though foolishly because it did not have the senate and it did not have the mandate that it wanted to have so it attempted essentially to do it alone from the house but the tea party was an issue-based attack on obamaism let's say you know with the 10th amendment and you know budget the spending was too much obama had passed four bills spending two and a half trillion dollars that needed to be stopped we couldn't just raise the debt ceiling every time they wanted because that just gave them purchase to do that. Um, but I don't see a message. I mean, I know inflation is bad and we need gas prices are terrible and the culture war is bad, you know, the transgenderism and what they're doing in schools and all that is bad. But I don't see what the House in in 2023 has to run against Biden on except situationally. Like they'll want this, yep. so their house will say no. Right. Well, I would. I think you could do the country public service if you can find a way to describe what happens when a, a, a tsunami is interrupted, which is the word you <laughs> use. But I'm probably not the right metaphor. You know, the right geo. Well, geo, whatever it is. There's got to be calmed. some metaphor the calmed. country needs to use. Calmed. Um. Look, remember, Kevin McCarthy's supposed to be announcing some big contract with America uh, around Labor Day which will be, if it's anything like as advertised and as it's been described to me, much more specific as not just an anti-democratic platform, but an affirmative platform than what the Tea Party had. Um, I'm not sure that'll be that'll be the good or tactically the right thing to do, but they are supposed to be coming forward with some pretty specific ideas on things like inflation and crime and immigration, which are the animating issues right now for what, you know, what used to be called the Tea Party. Um, and, and so I think we have to wait for that. It's also, I think, just as a factual matter, two things are true about Biden's approval rating. One is right now, Democratic candidates are defying the, the sort of conventional wisdom about how far ahead you can run of a president of your own party in terms of his approval rating. They're, they're doing quite well in these Senate and gubernatorial races, even with Biden's numbers in their states being bad. But what will Biden's approval rating be on October 1st? Will it be in the in the mid low mid forties? Will it stay in the thirties? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised either way. But I think that that may be enough for Republicans to win more than thirty House seats and take control of the Senate uh, without having some any sort of aspirational positive agenda. Because because the conditions on the ground for many Americans with inflation, John, as you know, Saito charges a dollar per falafel ball right now. That to me is all all you need to know. <laughs> Um, uh, the conditions on the ground are sufficiently bad. They're they're worse than they were in 2010. Bloomberg right. uh, has a, a driving season, gauging what people are uh, spending on driving season. And gas consumption right now is lower than it was at this point in 2020, in the depths of the pandemic, when you were literally not allowed to leave your house. So but anytime you know, Paul, people you know talk about how gas prices are declining, it's not because of increased supply or some legislative initiative it's because people are using less of it and so when you tout that your average experience the person who shares that experience is saying well yeah i can't go anywhere because it's too expensive you jerk but you know full well the the demand for falafel balls is significantly more inelastic than it is for gas you know that fair enough if you've been you on know, the upper west side you know that i'm starting i will say i think it is very important to note that it is very very hard at this at this when an inflationary crisis happens and we haven't had one for 40 years it is very hard for affluent people to understand the effect of inflation in their gut it really is because okay gas goes from two dollars to four dollars so you know it's costing you 25 dollars more to, you know to fill up your tank 
or $50 more a week. All right, that sucks. You know, and you talk, it's a talking point at the country club or at, you know, at dinner at a really nice restaurant, but you, you know, you can pocket it. You know, it's like your private school tuition goes up 5% a year also, and you complain about it, but it's fine. You make $50,000 a year and your gas bill goes up $100 a week. And that is, it's not exactly a screwdriver in the back of the head, but it is, you know, well, you and when you have to pay every, that because yeah. you got to get to your job because you commute right. to your job and you live right. on a fixed income or you live paycheck to paycheck, yeah. that actually comes out of yeah. something else. Utility bills rising, grocery bills rising. It all adds up. That's why it is a kind of tax but, on working right. people, not but on I, upper income people. I only mention that because my experience of the Democratic effort to deal with inflation over the last week has been a kind of triumphalism about the reduction in gas prices and five more than five dollars a gallon is catastrophic beyond belief and they they understand that but they don't really understand that gas that's in excess of four dollars a gallon is also catastrophic beyond belief because they don't feel it in their kishkas and it's really hard if you don't and now let me talk to you about something you'll feel not in your kishkas but all over your body and that's your sheets that you sleep in. Because look, what are some things that keep better as you keep getting better as you use them? A great leather jacket, a cast iron skillet, solid wood furniture. Would you ever think sheets could be on that list? Well, bowl and branch sheets are on that list. They're not just buttery, breathable, and impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. Forget thread count. Bowl and branch gives you thread quality because it doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. And Bowl and Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth. Sheets made with threads so luxurious, they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. They feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable. So they're perfect for every season. Over 10,000 stellar reviews, 100% free from toxins, nine neutral colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bowen Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders, so get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowenBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code COMMENTARY. So, Mark, we got to let you go, but I want to ask you one final question in terms of political gamesmanship. And that is this outrage on the part of Mayor Muriel Bowser of DC and Eric Adams of New York that Greg Abbott is putting uh, illegal immigrants on buses and sending them to New York and DC, both of which are sanctuary cities that have promised no prosecution, no nothing for illegal immigrants. And this is now happening and it's, I think, and I am a total dove on immigration. So uh, I, I always say this, like I, I, I am not with the conservative consensus on immigration. This is one of the greatest trolls I have ever seen. This, I don't like political, I don't like trolling as a general matter of politics, but having sanctuary city mayors complaining that they have to, ha they now have to deal with the illegal immigrants that they have now promised they would take care of and not turn into ice and do all that. I gotta say, like in 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 the doldrums of summer, I'm this is one that I'm enjoying. As a matter of political elegance, this is smashing and brilliant in terms of trolling. It's you're right. It's just just crazy good, and uh, and they're very media friendly. They they tend to drop the the buses off right in front of Fox News uh, bureaus <laughs> to make sure that it gets. I'm not kidding. To make sure it gets full coverage. You know, I, I think a lot about the, as a parent, I just think a lot about the kids and the young people who are caught up in this and the human tragedy of it. But I have to say, in an administration whose incompetence has been on vivid display in a lot of areas, their failure to come up with an immigration policy that's different from the one they started with, that's been such an abject failure, just confounding to me. I don't understand what they're waiting for. And immigration is a great issue, maybe even more than inflation where I think people sitting in bureaus in Washington and New York have no idea the extent to which this is an animating and, and infuriating reality for people across the country, not just in border states. So I think I think uh, the governor of Texas has been very skillful, but I think in general, it's, it's, he's, he's taking advantage of the image and po policy positions of the Democratic Party from the mayors up to the president, which just don't seem to have anything like a theory of the case about how to deal with the border in a humane way.
Well, Mark Halperin, like I said, I've been trying to get you on for a year. I'm thrilled you were here. This was incredibly uh, illuminating and revivifying. Everybody go to Mark. Do you have a URL? Because I get your just, I get your stuff by just, email. Like, how just, do people just just type "Wide World of News" in the Google or Bing machines, and you'll come right up. There. Wide World of News. The Bing the Bing machines. That's an even better reference like, than Dick I Sargent. Like I don't like monopolies. I use Bing as often as I can. Duck Duck Goose. Anyway, but I'm exactly. just saying, as a in terms of obscurity, you have you have you have had two really excellent trivia things here dick Sargent and bing well so thank i'm really you so honored really honored that you had me on um I, i'm going to compare it to my trip to the harry potter amusement park in orlando 90 percent better than i expected it is so good less yeah. nauseating too, right? so good. <laughs> it's an imperfect right. metaphor but but i really i really enjoy being on as i said i listen all the time and so oh well thank you thrilla, less thrilla nauseating. To be i like it crushing morality <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less and you're right and you're right. The Harry Potter part of the of Universal is uh, dynamite, and uh, yeah. I've been it there is. many times. But it, but exceeded my expectations. Just as my go. appearance here, in terms of my own experience. So thank you all. I really well, enjoyed it, and pleased to be here. Thank you so much. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.